Father, we resonate deeply with that song that Greg just sung. We recognize that oftentimes this life is filled with challenges. It's filled with hardships, that the world is not the way it should be. And Lord, we praise you and we thank you that the good news of the gospel reveals that we have not been left alone, that we are not a people without hope. But Lord, you promise that you'll come again and that you'll restore all things. And in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our pain, you are with us in the fire. Father, we turn to you now right before we open the scripture and we ask God that you would speak to us. That you would reveal yourself as we just sang to be present in this moment. That you're not far away, but you're close. That your word isn't something that was given thousands of years ago as a dead document, but it's living and active. And your intention this morning is to cut us to the heart. Your intention this morning is to transform us into your likeness, to show us realities beyond what we could ever imagine, to give us hope, to give us joy, to give us peace. And so, Lord, we look to you and we pray to you the way you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Please rise with me as we read from God's word. Our scripture passage this morning we have two of them. The first one is Matthew 22, 34 through 40, and the second one is from John chapter 15. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Pharisees, uh, the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together. One of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, and the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And then from John chapter 15. I am the true vine, and my father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch shall bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves 
to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down his life for one's friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give you. This is my command. Love each other. This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Okay, well, where were we? So this, this week, this winter, we are taking nine weeks to unpack the, the vision and the values of Center Church. And each Sunday, what we're doing, we're looking at scripture and we're asking the question, what has God called us to do? And what does God value? And if we are living out of his values, what is this church going to look like in 2024 and beyond? And my hope is for all of you guys here this morning that no matter if you've been in this church for 50 years or for 15 minutes... Everybody has something that, that God wants to give them in this message. I, I hope that as you listen to this, you're going to leave this room excited about what God is doing. Not just in this little church, but in your own life and in this community around us. Now, if you recall, if you were here the other weeks, we unveiled our missional mandate, which we already read once. But it says that Center Church is making room for everyone to experience joyful life-transforming connection to Jesus and his people. That's our mission because that's God's mission. That's why we're doing it. And along with this mission statement, we have some core values. And these core values, they define who we are as we pursue this mission. So last week, we talked about the first core value. That was that we are gospel-centered in everything that we do. And this week... We get to our second core value. That's what we're going to spend the rest of our time on together this morning. Our second core value is this. We are becoming and forming healthy disciples. We are becoming and forming healthy disciples. And, and I can't wait to get into this. We're going to just jump right into it. But there's three questions we're going to ask to unpack this value. The first is, why healthy disciples? The second is, what does Jesus prioritize for his disciples? And then finally, how do we make healthy disciples? So why healthy disciples? What's that all about? And then what does Jesus prioritize? And then finally, how do we actually go about doing this? Okay, so what does this mean? Why did we put the word healthy before the word Disciples, is that really necessary? Um, one of the most famous, is, famous passages in all of Scripture is the Great Commission. If you're not familiar with it, it's the, the moment 
after the resurrection when Jesus is giving his final charge to the disciples. And in that passage, he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. So at this crucial, pivotal moment, Jesus says to the people following him that we are to go, that we are to make disciples, that we should baptize those disciples, we should teach them, we should teach them to obey everything that he commanded. Now that is an all-encompassing kind of charge. And that's not only for them, of course, that's for everybody who would come after them and follow him. And if you try to unpack that statement, you realize there's a whole lot in there. Everything is in there, right? Everything he commanded. Unfortunately, I think in the evangelical church today, the way this command is often carried out is very lopsided. Our understanding of what it means to go and make disciples is oftentimes imbalanced. And just let me give you an example from my own life of what I'm talking about. When I became a Christian, I was given a Bible and a little three-ring binder that had a reading plan and some, a spot for notes. And I was told, now that you're a Christian, you should read your Bible every day and you should pray, and maybe you can write down some thoughts and reflections, and okay, good advice. Then I was told, and you should always have a church community that you're a part of, and you need to find a place to serve in that church, because God gives everyone gifts, and so you need to figure out what your gifts are, and you should use them in the church. Again, great, good advice. And I was told also, you know, you should probably, as you're walking out this Christian life, find some Christian friends, maybe a group of people who could hold you accountable, keep you in check. You need to start living a moral, good Christian life. You need to avoid sexual immorality. You need to pursue purity in your thoughts and in your actions. Okay, great. I'll, I'll do that too. And you should do evangelism. And you should learn theology. And you should care about the poor and, oh, you have some teaching gifts, so you should probably lead in the youth group or, or form a Bible study or something. You see what I'm saying? This is what discipleship meant for me. It was about learning new skills that would prepare me for life and ministry. And later, I mentioned last week, I spent a year as a missionary overseas and while I was doing that, it was more of the same. I would go around and I'd share this gospel message. And then when people came to faith, well, I had these five documents, these follow-ups that we had to go through to, quote, disciple them. And what was in the follow-ups? Well, it was all that same stuff. It was lessons about here's what you need to do, here's what you need to know so that you can grow in your faith. Habits, skills, behaviors, disciplines and theology and these things will make you mature now there's nothing wrong with any of that stuff those things are all really good but what I came to recognize after years of working and serving in ministry was that I was malformed that I had been given an incomplete and an inadequate model of discipleship 
And that model, it had done a lot of good. It had produced a lot of fruit and results in the areas of service for the Lord, right? I was a missionary. I'm going to seminary. I'm becoming a pastor. I'm doing lots of things. But there were also other aspects of my life where for over 20 years, I had seen very little, if any, change. Spiritually, I think I was kind of like a bodybuilder who had been doing bench presses and curls and push-ups and totally neglecting the rest of me. I was, I was atrophied <laughs> from the waist down. I was an imbalanced disciple. Now, these kinds of unhealthy disciples, they're not rare. Especially in this current American church that we all are a part of. In fact, I'm, I'm sure if, if you've been around these churches, our churches that tend to be very focused on the preacher, very focused on the Sunday service, very focused on activities and events and all these kinds of things, you have probably run into some unhealthy disciples yourself. And these are people who love the Lord, they genuinely believe, they know their Bible. They have a passion for prayer. They serve in the church. But there is still this certain unhealth beneath the surface. Maybe it's that person who, the moment something goes wrong, they explode in anger like a child. Maybe it's the person who lives their life every day as such a people pleaser that they can't sleep at night if they think someone might be unhappy with them. Or it's the person who, when they don't get their own way, they, they gossip and they manipulate to get the outcome they want rather than just having a conversation they need to have. Or maybe it's that person who can't forgive, who holds on to their hurts for years and years, bearing grudges that they can hardly remember what they were about and increasingly becoming bitter. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, I don't need to ask if you've seen this. I know you have. If you're like me, maybe there's been times when you've caught yourself doing some of these things. And I bet even if you aren't a Christian, unfortunately, you've seen some of this stuff from the church. So the question is, for you all, why is this so common? Is this what Christians are supposed to be like? Is it what Jesus expected when he said, go out and make disciples? When he said, abide in me? Of course not. But that's what happens when we have this incomplete model of discipleship. A model that overemphasizes the doing for God and then ignores the heart level deep transformation in your life that can only come from being with God. We have a model that teaches us to go, to do, to make disciples, to teach, but it forgets to teach us that last line of the Great Commission where he said, Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. So, for a corrective to this, I think the only thing we can do is to look at what Jesus did. Look at what Jesus said. We need to ask, what does he emphasize? What does he prioritize? According to his standards, are we growing the way he intended? 
or are we atrophied and lopsided? Are we unhealthy disciples? Okay, so let's look at that. Number two, what does Jesus prioritize for his disciples? We read two passages this morning. I just want to hit some of the highlights because in there, there are three essentials that I think we overlook in Jesus' teaching on discipleship. Three overlooked essentials. Okay, I'm going to read a couple verses back. See if you can pick up on the subtle theme from these verses. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then going into John 15, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. You did not choose me, but I appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last, and so that whatever you ask in my name, the Father will give it to you. This is my command. Love each other. Okay, so listening to that, what would you say is the chief mark of a disciple? What is the primary fruit that should be produced in the Christian life? Hey, you got it. Good job. I knew you guys were smart. That's the first thing. The essential measure of Christian maturity is love. Now, we did a whole sermon series on this not too long ago. We spent months talking about this. So I'm not going to belabor the point. But I will say, Jesus is abundantly clear that the the primary measure of Christian maturity is love. And I have been in church meetings, not at this church, but at others, where I have thought that that good, godly Christian people were going to come to blows with each other over the disagreements they were having. I I once saw a pastor pull his hair out and stomp his feet in a circle like a toddler because he didn't like the way another pastor was explaining his views on the work of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) How does that happen? Jesus' teaching is really clear. He says it doesn't matter all the other gifts and skills and talents that you might possess, the number one measure of your maturity, the thing that sets a Christian apart, that, that, that marks his disciples, is our love for one another. That's the first one. Here's the second part. Look again back at that commandment. He says, The greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul And with all your mind. There's another passage in Mark. Similar event. Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Here's the second essential. Our maturity is multifaceted. Our love for God has several dimensions to it. So for the majority of my Christian life, I would say I was taught really well how to love the Lord my God with my mind and with my strength. I learned what to do, how to think. I learned what behaviors I should model, but what I didn't learn was just, I didn't learn anything about my heart. I didn't 
ever learn what I was supposed to do with this emotional turmoil that was constantly raging inside of me. I had no idea what to do with the trauma in my life. I had no idea how to handle intense conflict that was coming at me in the midst of the church and in the midst of ministry. How do I handle my fear? What do I do with my anger or my sadness when it washes over me? Well, think about that. Doesn't God want to make you more like Christ in those places too? Pete Scazzaro is a a pretty well-known pastor in New York, and he has an entire series of books written about this issue, uh, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality. Um, And they've been really helpful to me. And the tagline of those books, I don't know if I've got it here in my slides or not, is the tagline is, it is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. It is impossible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. If you only engage with God intellectually, if your obedience is only expressed through actions and disciplines, it's not that you aren't a Christian. You are certainly a Christian, but you are also missing out on some of the most beautiful things that God has for you. I know this because that's how I lived. For a long time as a pastor, that is where I lived. I never thought about how to engage my inner life before the Lord. I looked great on the outside. I was doing all the right things. I was, was, you know, a young pastor planting churches in my late 20s, you know. I I was, you know, from the outside... Everything looked great. But inside, I was a mess. Inside, I was a disaster. Maybe I didn't pull out my hair and stomp around like a toddler. You know, that's, that's just not my disposition, thankfully. That's, I'm, I'm not drawn that way. But here's maybe even worse. On the other side, what, what was true of me is that I was constantly eaten up by anxiety. I was constantly fearful. I was so desperately seeking everyone's approval that disagreements in the church, even nice and constructive criticism, it would send me reeling. I'd come home and I'd be short with my family. I'd run through my run away from my pain with all kinds of unhealthy distractions. I couldn't stop thinking about the church, lay awake at night, worried. I had very little joy in my life. And I had no idea there was any other way. It certainly never occurred to me that this actually was a flaw in my discipleship, that this was actually something that Jesus wanted and intended to change in me. That becoming like Jesus, at the end of the day, it's going to transform not just my actions, but it's going to transform my inner life as well. So there's no time to go into that whole story. I can't tell you what all happened, but I'll say eventually it led me to crash and burn living like that. 
Eventually, I fell flat on my face. (laughs) And in that place of brokenness and disaster, God graciously brought some leaders in my life who were able to show me that while my mind and my strength had been worked well, my heart and my soul were atrophied. That true Christian maturity is a multifaceted thing. Mind and strength, heart and soul. And so the third thing that comes from that, the third thing that Jesus emphasizes, but we often miss in our own discipleship, is that being with Jesus is the source of our fruit. Being with Jesus. Pete Scazzaro, he he often talks about how in this culture we live in, the culture that teaches us from day one, from our earliest moments, you got to be a doer. You got to make things happen. We're, we're constantly on the go. We're always on the move. And even now, today, even our, our leisure time is filled with relentless multitasking, right? I can't even sit down and watch a movie anymore without also scrolling through the internet and online shopping and doing a million other things. So, is it any surprise that we end up being very challenged by a Savior who comes to us and he says, Abide. He says, remain in me. This world with full of productivity apps and emails and social media and text messages and phones that are constantly buzzing and a million different people and tasks to attend to and think about, how do we deal with a creator who comes to us and says, be still? Who says, be still and know that I'm God. We know the passages, right? Jesus says, I came to give you life and to give it abundantly. And that abundant life that Jesus is calling you to, that abundant life that he is offering us, that is a life that must be lived at a fundamentally different pace than the rest of the world. It's a life of Sabbath, where one day out of seven, we rest from our labors. It's a life of prayer and silence where we go before the Lord and we pour out our hearts and we entrust our cares to him. It's a way that looks foolish to people, being silent and still. It looks like you're not doing anything. But that's what Christ invites us to do. It's a life where we are building margin into our days. So that we have time to actually take a deep breath and pause and give thanks and become aware that God hasn't abandoned us in this moment in the middle of our day. But he's very much present and he's very much providing. It's a a moment so that we can lift our eyes out of those daily hardships that we always face and encounter. The plans that never quite go the way we expect them to go. And we can slow down and we can remember that God is reigning that God is in control, that he sees us. It's a life where we slow down and we meet with Jesus. Being with Jesus. Overdoing for Jesus. Do you hear that? That's what we're invited to. But instead, what we usually choose is 
over-functioning, right? What we usually choose is that we, we take it upon ourselves to do God's job. And so we end up in the church, especially, busy. Our task, our calendars are full. We are busy beyond what we could possibly do. We schedule no time in between one meeting and the next because we think, oh, well, I can probably get it all done. We say yes way too quickly. We don't invite other people to help us, and we certainly don't trust them to do a job for us. And we fear what other people might think when they ask us to do something. Well, what if I say no? What will they think of me? And so we overcommit, and we burn out. Nobody here knows anything about this, right? This first thing, it's the first time you ever heard of it, yeah. No, we all do this. And in the midst of that, in the midst of your crazy, hectic life, Jesus says, abide in me. Abiding in him, remaining in him. It's about recognizing that very simple statement, apart from me, you can do what? nothing. It's about not just knowing that theologically, but feeling that in our hearts. It's about living in a way that, that shows the world what people need is not us. They need Jesus. They need Christ in us. And the only way we can give them that is if we ourselves have received it. That's what Jesus emphasized. Love is the ultimate measure of being his disciple. And, and the way we love, it's multifaceted. Not just with our mind and our strength, but with our heart, with our emotions, with our soul. And the way that happens is by spending time with him. By being with him. By living a life that gives space for us to spend time in his presence. So then how do we do that? How do we become healthy disciples? And, and then how, if we are going to go forward and try to do this, how do we make healthy disciples in this church? Well, first of all, the number one answer that's always the answer is we have to go back to basics. We need to lean into the gospel. The gospel is not about doing the gospel is about receiving. Amen? If you're as messed up as me, I know you, I could hear a sermon like this, and I would turn this just into another to-do list. Right? Well, okay, I've been discipling and I've done all these things, but now, oh, I see there's a whole bunch of other things I also need to do. So I'll do those too, and that'll fix it. No, that's not the point. It's not about reading the Bible and doing this and doing this plus a new list. That's not the way. You know, the Reformation, it started in 1517. Martin Luther, you remember, he, he wrote down the 95 theses. He nailed them onto the door at this college where he was teaching. And the 95 theses, they were the statements about uh, things we needed to discuss about our faith. And the first one, it was, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be about repentance. Here's what that means. It means the journey to maturity, the journey to health for all of us, is this continued cycle, first of repentance, and then faith. Repentance, 
and faith. Repentance and faith. It's about repenting of those busy lives that we all know we live. Those lives where we have left no room for him. It's about repenting of the ways that we have excused and tolerated our acceptable sins. That we've let that anger and anxiety and bitterness and insecurity and fear just run rampant. It's about repenting of the ways we've been trying to bear fruit without being connected to the vine. And then, it's about believing the good news. That Christ really has come for you. That he has taken the penalty for your sins. And he's nailed it to the cross. It's taken care of. You know, at the end of the day, Jesus is the only one who has ever loved the Lord his God with all of his heart and with all of his soul and with all of his mind and with all of his strength. He's the only one who ever did it. But he did it for you. He did it in your place. So no matter how unhealthy you might feel right now, no matter how far away you might seem from this perfect standard that we're trying to lift up right now, just know he's not done with you. And, and Jesus, who began a good work in you, he's going to bring it to completion. He's not going to leave that work in your life unfinished. He intends to give you a new heart. He intends to give you a renewed mind. All you've got to do is surrender and let him do it. Repent and receive his righteousness instead of your performance. Repent and receive his love for you and, and bathe in that instead of the love of the world around you. Repent and receive his joy that transcends whatever you might be going through. Repent and allow him to finally work in some of those places in your heart that you have walled off and you have not let him come in. That's step one. Step two is a little more practical. If we want to become healthy disciples, and if we want to be a church that is forming healthy disciples, then we have to rethink the way we do discipleship. We have to actually make room for him. See, I'm the new young pastor, right? And you know I've got lots of thoughts. <laughs> You know I've got lots of ideas. You know I've got lots of plans and programs and things I want us to try, things I want us to do. I, I've got great hopes for what the future is going to be. But if we're going to be healthy disciples, we might actually need to start by doing less for a little while. We might need to slow down and make space. We're going to need to build in that margin so that our doing for God doesn't outpace our being with God. And so here's where a sermon reaches its limit, right? Just talking about this isn't going to change anything. The Spirit himself is the only one who can do this work in you. Only you learning to abide in Jesus will actually change you. If we want to make healthy disciples, we've got to become them ourselves. We cannot lead anyone to a place we've never been. And so, for this second core value, part of our journey is going to be slowing down. 
Yeah, we're still going to teach people to read their Bibles and to pray, to do evangelism and all those good activities that, that Christ does call us to do. But we're also going to start modeling with our lives the importance of being with Jesus, not just doing for Jesus. Now, what's that going to look like? Really quick. Well, I hope it means that our church is going to be different from the world. I hope in our church we won't have theological giants who are emotional infants. I hope that we're going to see reconciliation instead of explosion when we encounter disagreements. I hope we'll see healthy confrontations when things need to be talked about instead of burying them, burying our pain and and letting it flow out into passive-aggressive behaviors or gossip or manipulation. I hope we'll see apologies. I hope we'll see not not a conflict-free church, but a church that knows how to do conflict well. To do conflict in the kind of way that when other people see it, they see the one thing Jesus expected, love for one another. That's what should define us. Does that get you excited about the future? Because it really gets me excited about the future. I get excited when I think about a church full of people who have been deeply changed, who know not just, but who are known not just because of all the good things that they know and teach about God, but because when you meet them, it's clear that they've truly been with God. And with that, I think we have a great invitation to this table that's laid out before us.